right, all right. Welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored in part by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. GE Marine offers unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine. And by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, the Navy ordered two new aircraft carriers at once from Newport News Shipbuilding, and the shipyard is going to build the third and fourth ships of the Gerald R. Ford class a bit differently. We'll hear from the shipyard's vice president in charge of construction of those two vessels about what will be different on the next carriers from the Virginia shipbuilders. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. Navy ships from a number of countries have entered or are operating in the Red Sea to support the evacuation of foreign nationals from Sudan. The U.S. destroyer Truxton and expeditionary sea-based ship Lewis B. Puller are off Port Sudan, and among other nations, Canada's support ship Asterix and the British frigate Lancaster also are taking part, as are many military aircraft. The three ships of China's 43rd Escort Force also have been involved, and the supply ship Wijanhu took more than 200 Pakistani nationals from Sudan to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Fighting broke out in the country's capital of Khartoum due to a power struggle between two heavily armed factions. The level of Russian naval activity, as measured from open sources, has dropped to levels not seen in over two years, reported a Belgian naval analyst. The departure on April 22nd of three Russian warships with an oiler supposedly headed for the Baltic Sea contributed to the drop in overall numbers. Iran on April 27th seized a civilian merchant oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman. The advantage suite of 159,000 dead weight tons and registered in the Marshall Islands was en route from Kuwait bound for Houston, Texas, when it was boarded by the Republic of Iran Navy from the Corvette Bayandor and taken to Iranian waters. Iran claimed the advantage suite collided with an Iranian fishing craft in the Persian Gulf during the evening of April 26th and fled the scene. Iranian state media said two members of the fishing vessel were missing and others injured. The Chinese Navy commissioned the destroyer Zhang Yang in March, the eighth Type 55 Nanjing-class destroyer to enter service since 2020. Displacing well over 12,000 tons, the ships are China's most modern and capable surface ship. Two shipyards are producing the Type 55s, along with slightly smaller Type 52D destroyers. A U.S. Navy P-8A Poseidon maritime patrol aircraft carried out a transit of the Taiwan Strait on April 27th, marking the second time this year the U.S. has sent a Navy aircraft through the waterway between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland. There have also been two U.S. Navy surface ship transits so far this year. The U.S. aircraft carrier George H.W. Bush returned to her home port of Norfolk April 23rd after an eight-month deployment to the Mediterranean Sea with carrier Air Wing 7. The Bush will be relieved in the Med by USS Gerald R. Ford, making her first fully-fledged operational deployment. 
Chinese and Philippine Coast Guard vessels were involved in several standoffs and skirmishes in the South China Sea during the past week. Philippine forces were reportedly monitoring a large fleet of 116 Chinese fishing vessels near Julian Felipe Reef, also known as Whitson Reef, and another 18 near Sabina Shoal, regions well inside the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. As depicted in several videos displayed on social media, there have been several confrontations and near collisions between Chinese and Filipino ships. And on April 26th, U.S. and Philippine forces took part in the live fire sinking exercise of a decommissioned Philippine Navy ship in the South China Sea during Exercise Balakatan. The victim was the Corvette Pangasinan, which was decommissioned in 2021. The ship was originally USS PCE-891, built as a patrol escort ship in 1944 in Willamette, Oregon. Known only by her hull number, she was transferred to the Philippines in 1948 as part of the original Philippine Navy and was an active ship until shortly before being decommissioned. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. On this week's discussion portion of the podcast, we bring you an interview from early April in which Chris and I had the opportunity to spend some time with Brian Fields of Newport News Shipbuilding. Brian is the vice president for the Enterprise and Doris Miller Aircraft Carrier Programs. We talk digital shipbuilding, additive manufacturing, and the new ways that Newport News and HII are building the nation's warships. During our conversation, we talked about additive manufacturing, the, the differences in building these two ships versus previous ships, including going as far back as the Nimitz class. We talked about the types of tools, the training, and the ability to track the progress, not only of the ship, but of the workforce, as well as the opportunities that additive manufacturing provides not only shipbuilding, but ship maintenance and repair, in a shipyard or in a contested logistics or contested maintenance environment. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Brian Fields of Newport News Shipbuilding. Brian, thanks for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you know some of the additive man manufacturing that'll go into uh, the parts and pieces that go together to make up these carriers. Uh, th this is not the way you built uh, the, the Nimitz class by any stretch of the imagination. You've come a long way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. we're, we're uh um, aggressively working with the Navy to qualify the processes. Um, the processes are, in commercial terms, are, are fairly mature, but from a military standpoint, getting all the specifications, the processes, the machines, the people all qualified, making sure that, that the quality of the parts that we're putting on, on our ships are, are meeting, meeting the expectations. Um, a lot of years of investment have gone into that, and we're starting right now to see the benefit of that. So we're printing big metal parts and putting them on, on our ships. Um, at scale um, is still in front of us, but we definitely have some um, very specific needs that we find that traditional manufacturing doesn't support from a schedule standpoint. So if we need a, a part um, that is gonna hold up the ship moving forward and we see that and we can do it in 25% of the time of a, of a casting, we're going after it. Our, our engineering team and the Navy are, are understand the value of this and we're really pushing the, the envelope. We, we see that this is um, probably in the next decade is going to be um, at scale something that is providing more and more parts for all of our ships. What percentage, if you had a guess, would you say um, you would get to on 
uh, the ships that you're building right now? You know, are we talking five percent, ten percent, or are we talking smaller than that? I, I think it's smaller than that in, in terms of parts. I mean, th this is just another tool in the toolkit, sure. right? If I got a hole and I need something, how do I quickly fill it? Um, the technology, really what's going to pace how far this goes is the deposition rate of additive, and that's where a lot of R&D is going in. How, how fast can I print? The faster you can print, the cheaper it is, um, the, the, the more parts you can make in a, in a given period of time. You'll see more and more parts come, come into, into the shipbuilding process. So one of the things, uh, you were just talking a little bit a, a little while ago about um, spare parts. So, so you have spare parts, you have supply chain issues. There are, there seems to me that um, this has a lot of applications in terms of overcoming a lot of the supply issues, which everyone knows, no matter what you're ordering these days, um, you run into all kinds of issues. You're having some impact on that already in some ways, are you? Um, we're addressing it. Um, mm -hmm. part, part of the challenge is the, the supply base that supports construction and fleet maintenance is the same supply base. So um, as we identify additive processes, um, traditionally it's been the construction process has, has driven that R&D, um, but we are seeing immediate applications for, for fleet support. Um, I'll tell you that we, our, our engineering team had a, a part that needed to be 3D printed to support Ford's deployment several months ago. The Gerald R. Ford. The Gerald R. Ford CVN-78. Um, it was something that wasn't readily available, and it, it could have been cast, but they had, the, they had the, the specifications and the approvals to do that, and they moved forward with it. And in a really short period of time, traditionally, um, it was printed, inserted, and, and she went to sea. And you, you, you all have been thinking about how to, how to get that to sea. So you were talking about maybe having a shop in a Connex box that you could put on a ship. Something like that, is that right? Yeah, so um, it's one thing shore-based to, to do that. The other, other concept that we're, we're aggressively working with Lincoln Electric and the Navy is can we put a palletized kind of connex box, plug, you know, plug in gases and train a few sailors and you can, in an emergency, print a part you don't have on, as onboard repair part. Um, carriers have machine shops on board, so it's a kind of a natural um, natural connection to, to be able to print something, machine it, and, and use it. And not just for the carrier, but for any, any ship in the strike group, right? That you need something fast, um, you, could, you could have a floating machine shop that could print and machine parts. I think that's still a, a vision in the fu future, but um, there are definitely um, thought leaders in the Navy that, that want to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, especially as you talk about what the supply lines may look like in high-end competition um, or contested logistics, um, you know, having some basic level to be able to resupply or repart yourself uh, within the strike group um, is a huge advantage for, you know, the maintenance officer of that of that strike group. And then, you know, the, the technology certainly exists to reach back to HII or other vendors to be able to get support or, you know, fly them out. But uh, that ability to print those those uh, those parts right there, uh, there are a lot of strike group commanders that are going to sleep well at night, uh, you know, knowing that, um, you, you know, especially as that logistics train gets harder and harder. Yeah, it's a game changer you know, if you carry it through to the to the end conclusion that you can you can be self-sustaining. Um, it's a lot easier to email a, a 3D printed part design and print it there than to send out 
something on a ship or fly it out to, to support. So the underlying piece of that is technology. It's um, the improvement of technology and it's really the understanding of um, the operators on board the ship, but also the operators back at HII uh, to use this technology. You guys are taking that to as far as you can take it throughout the shipyard and throughout the production of, uh, of these carriers. You wanna talk a little bit about how you're using um, technology and how you train and how you track the progress of your folks, not just in your ability to uh, print parts, but in your ability to actually bring people up to speed in their, in their task and then track their progress as they get more and more senior in the job. Sure. Um as much as we'd like to say that, that shipbuilding is a automated function, it is still an enormous labor intensive business. So the better we can equip our people with the information to be able to do their job safely and efficiently, um, you know, the, the more successful we are in delivering our ships on time and on budget. So we have seen a, an enormous shift in our, uh, the demographics of our workforce uh, over the last uh, um, several years we've had thousands of new trades coming into, into Newport News Shipbuilding. Um, I think our, our statistics right now that over 50% of our craft workforce has less than five years of experience. So um, it takes a long time to be comfortable uh, knowing what to do and how to do your job and as a craftsperson um, building a ship. So we've made a large investment in a, in a digital approach to making those people more competent faster. Um, one of those is, is training. So we've got a lot of, of virtual reality training that allows people to, to get the basic experiences they need to be safe on ships, to understand um, how to go into confined spaces, fire safety, um, how to do weld inspections, things that are um, typically learned on the job and take a while um, and are probably not the, the safest way to, to learn. We are now doing, and we've, we've had approaching 5,000 people go through VR training um, with a whole host of, of competencies. Um, but more basic, when you ask someone, go do this job, and you hand them a drawing that's 500 pages and weighs 50 pounds, and they spend hours pouring through it to say, I, really, I need to know exactly what you're asking me to do. We've approached that through a, a, a long-term investment called Integrated Digital Shipbuilding. And it's, it is simply a step-by-step -step 3D instruction. You can zoom, spin, all the information you need to do that job is, is there, provided to you on a laptop issued to you as a, as a, a worker at Newport News. Um, the technology is cutting edge. Um, we're pushing the envelope with our, with our technology partners. Um, and what used to be thought of as a traditional, I'm a, I'm a shipbuilder, you know, black smokestack um, kind of knuckle-dragging job is now a high-tech job. You, you're getting the best tools, um, the best equipment, the best information to be able to, 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 to be a shipbuilder long-term. And we're seeing the younger workforce is just, just naturally attracted to that. So how about the older workforce, right? Um, you know, I was talking to a few of your staff members and one of the things they mentioned to me was this reverse mentoring, right? For years, the idea was that the more senior crusty shipbuilder would take under their arm the, uh, the you know, the new uh, young shipbuilder. And, you know, and, and I'm thinking of welding and they would kind of help 
them through. But you're seeing, I mean, I'm sure you're still seeing a lot of that, but you're also seeing the other side of it as well, right? Kids, younger folks that have grown up with VR and technology in the palm of their hand, they're also helping your older workforce um, become more comfortable with using that. Um, so you're kind of going from the top down and the bottom up in terms of how you're doing training. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that term reverse mentoring is, is evident everywhere that we're, we're pushing our digital shipbuilding. Um, we don't require a whole lot of training to teach our younger workforce on how to use a laptop. Some of our more seasoned shipbuilders aren't familiar with that. So the younger guy on your crew, come help me understand how to, how to use this laptop and get the information. Um, and I'll show you the, some of the tips and tricks on how to be a good pipe fitter or a good sheet right. metal worker. So um, I don't think that we've, we've seen the end of that, um, but the, um, the surprise we had was, was the relationship changes in the, in the people um, when you insert something new. And all of a sudden the new people have something to, to, of value to bring that they didn't before. And that makes them feel more engaged, that they're providing value. And the more experienced shipbuilders are, are now seeing um, those people as, as valued teammates sooner. Chris, I'm gonna ask one more and then I'll throw it back to you. Um, you not only have the uh, benefit of the individual learning how to do their trade better, you have the ability to track them and maybe help improve their personal process, but you also have a wealth of data across your workforce, right? How much time are you guys putting into looking at all of that data and then, you know, going back and re, uh, retooling processes or, you know, finding efficiencies or, or finding problems where, where they may, may exist. So, I mean, it makes complete sense at the individual and shop level, but at the corporate level, this has got to be a, a tremendous opportunity opportunity for you guys it is and um, data is is a tricky thing um, it can tell you pretty much whatever you want so we we spent a lot of time making sure that we're measuring the things that are really important um, and equipping our leaders with the, the right information to coach um, to make good business decisions to evaluate processes and and improve safety quality productivity of our workforce um, one example of that is our welding um, application. We have, um, we have data thrown off of every welding machine that we capture and we turn into a simple app. If I'm a welding foreman, um, I can see every person on my crew, how many um, hours in a shift they're welding and when they're welding in that shift. And I can coach them up and say, hey, you're, it's taking you a little while maybe to get going in the morning. Are you waiting for me to come around or is there something else you need? Um, how, how do we use that information to to help the leaders be better, help the mechanics be better, challenge our processes, look for things that we didn't didn't know of until the data pointed it out. So um, it's a journey, but I think we're we're finding all kinds of ways to to use the data available to us to to improve our business. Um, before we go, I want to talk about workforce and workforce allocation around the shipyard. Newport News is, is this enormous vast shipyard it's like about a mile long almost or something it's a, it's a it takes a three and a half miles long yeah three and a half miles long um that's a pretty big shipyard um there you build big ships you build nuclear ships you also you're on the submarine program now virginia and columbia big part of your business is refueling overhauls reactor refueling all midlife 
over, overhaul for aircraft carriers. Usually it takes about four years. At the moment, you've actually got two carriers in there, George Washington and John C. Stennis. Unusual situation. Um, you're fitting out John F. Kennedy, 79. You're starting construction on 80, uh, 81, 82. There's a lot going on. And as these, as these things evolve and move through their phases, you move people around the shipyards. So uh, can you just talk a little bit about the considerations about how, at, you know, where, where you start getting more people, where there's a flow into your early ships from other programs, and some of the tensions that, 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 that can be involved in there. I mean, it's a strain on the yard right now to have two RICOs, two of these refueling overhauls. That's unusual. And seven years ago, people weren't planning for that, but you're having to deal with it today. That's just the reality. For, right. what, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. This is what we're doing. Um, all these things have ripple effects throughout the yard. Just talk a little bit about how you manage that stuff and how, you know, your relationships with other hulls. You know, you have two big hulls here, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, first I would say that um, as, a, as a team across the shipyard, we evaluate at the enterprise level, making sure that we're trying to be successful on all of our, our, our programs, all of our hulls. Um, for the most part, though, what when we see uh, assignment to um, a program, there's a there's a stability to stay with that program. Um, that's how you get learning um, the the information um, about the unique ship that I'm working on, especially submarines. The Virginia program, you know, every six months you're you're going to do it again. You want that learning. You want that that consistency um, for aircraft carrier construction. Um, in the north yard where the large dry dock is, um, what we have struggled with is consistency of, of work. So the, the spacing between hulls, if, if, if that work dries up, those people go away, and then I have to reconstitute that workforce, and you're, you're basically starting over again from a, a learning perspective. So um, working with the Navy, stability of our, our programs um, is, is a key to keeping the people on the programs they're on getting better and better and more proficient. So um, aircraft carrier construction has been very fluid in, this, in the centers. The, the two-ship buy for 80 and 81 with four-year centers on deliveries um, allows us to get up on plane and stay on plane. And the same thing occurs with our supply base. They can get up on plane and stay on plane. So as we talk about the next two carriers, 82, 83, we want to buy them two at a time on four-year centers. And doing that allows that workforce to, to have a long, predictable, um, repeatable work and become better and better at what they do. That's, that's really the key, and every program is the same way. If you're bouncing around, if, if you have instability in your, your workload, um, you, you have reverse learning. And we, we can't overcome that. that. That's just a fact of life. Um, the, the forecast for the ship in the shipbuilding plan, um, all of the, d the different programs that we're working, there is a consistency in all of them is stability of the work. That's the best, most efficient way to build ships. Okay. Well, Brian, this has been really a, really a great uh, discussion. I've learned a lot. Folks, we've been talking to Brian Fields. He is the Vice President of Aircraft Carrier Construction for CVN 80 and 81 Enterprise and Doris Miller. Brian, thanks again for being on this podcast. Well, thanks for having me today. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. Mr. Cavus has a musing following the conclusion of this year's posture hearings. Thanks, Chris. 
Well, the initial round of Navy posture hearings wrapped up hours before we recorded this podcast. Each year, the leaders of the Navy Department, the Navy Secretary, the Chief of Naval Operations, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps appear like the rest of the Pentagon leadership and those of each service before the four top congressional committees with direct oversight of the Defense Department's budget, the Appropriations and Armed Services Committees of the House and the Senate. This year, again, I watched all four. Listening to what the nation's senators and representatives want to question the Navy leadership about is an excellent way to see where this year's controversies lie. The truth is, despite whatever you might hear each year about the Pentagon's budget submission, the overwhelming majority of the, re of the request is approved without discussion. The hearings are where you get a sense of what issues or items might change. Discussions about the threat from China and the Navy's warfighting readiness were legion. Maybe something like half of all Congress critters use some allotment of their question time to display their concern. Other issues frequently cited were weapon stockpiles. The most frequent personnel concern was suicides among service people. And there are always a high number of questions reflecting parochial and constituent concerns of particular interest. But the theme that stood out through all four hearings, House and Senate, appropriators and authorizers, Democrats and Republicans, was the sense that the Navy and the Pentagon do not ask for enough ships. It's clear, heck, it's been clear for some years now that if the Navy asked for more ships, a bipartisan, bicameral Congress would pay for them. Why the Pentagon and successive presidential administrations from Presidents Obama, Trump, and Biden don't do this is a major mystery, particularly given China's huge efforts to build itself a vast modern Navy that can threaten not just the entire Western Pacific, but also extend Chinese influence worldwide. Within shipbuilding, Congress once again expressed its widespread disbelief that the Navy's disposal of numerous ships, many nowhere near the end of their expected service lives, is a good policy. Hardly anyone in the big high-backed chairs seems to believe that divest to invest is a policy that will pay useful dividends anytime soon. And over and over, pointed, direct questions from all sides drilled in the unexplained and so far inexplicable Pentagon decision to halt further procurement of LPD landing ship dock amphibious ships. No one is buying the explanation that the so-called strategic pause is going to yield budget bonuses. Far from it. It seems certain that Congress will reinstitute LPD procurement, which will be more costly no matter what, because the Navy already has disrupted the industrial supply chain, which will cost more to restart than if they'd simply try to change the procurement strategy while still building the ships, which everyone also agrees are important and needed. There will be further hearings, of course, drilling down into more specific issues. The very real threat of a full year continuing resolution for the fiscal 2024 budget would be a disaster should Congress just throw up its hands and find itself unable to do its job of funding the defense of the nation. But should they do their job and pass a 2024 defense budget, it seems a foregone conclusion that all versions of the bill will direct the Navy to buy more LPDs, which makes it a wonder why this is happening in the first place. Thanks, Chris. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Bagamaradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaships podcast is sponsored in part by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. GE Marine offers unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats, 
GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com marine. And by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles, making transoceanic missions possible. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.